0: Hello, Eggshells listener. Thanks so much for tuning in to another interview with Eggshells. It's an absolute joy to have you and to have had you along this journey. If you've been with us from the very beginning, or if you've only just started to listen to episodes, or if this is the very first one you've tuned into, it's just great to have you here. We're going to take a break for the summer. We'll be back later in the year. But for now... We just need to do some resting and recuperating here at Eggshell's headquarters. Got plenty of material that's been up since we started. I'm hesitating to remember when that was now. I'm going to say November 2021 with only some confidence. Anyway, loads of episodes for you to re-listen to, get back stuck into or listen to for the first time. And yeah, keep an eye out on this feed because we'll be back. You can also follow us on Instagram at the eggshells podcast or sign up to our newsletter. Hit up the link tree in these show notes. In the meantime, though, keep yourselves safe and happy and enjoy Ashley.
1: Hey, it's Hannah. This is Eggshells and you've tuned into an interview with Ashley Duncan. In this interview, Ashley, Lizzie and I explore disagreement and how to do it better. We spoke to Ashley about listening, training to be a therapist alongside being a parent and curiosity. If you liked the Listening and Empathy episodes, then I think you'll enjoy this. Ashley shares some really wise thoughts and helps to define the importance of not just listening to someone but really hearing them. She was an absolute pleasure to talk to, and we hope you enjoy listening to her as much as we did. Ashley is a self-confessed, God-bothering feminist mother of two, unschooly home educator, trainee therapist, serial houseplant killer, and minimalist in progress. Without further ado, here's Ashley in conversation with Eggshell.
2: So I am a mum of two little ones. I um, work part-time for a parenting website, and I'm training to be a counsellor, psychotherapist. And I live in London, but you can probably tell from my voice, I wasn't born in London. I was brought up in the northeast coast of Scotland, very, very northeast coast, and then have moved slowly down.
0: Is your husband from south?
2: No, he also, I mean, we didn't meet in the northeast, we met in Edinburgh, but um, he also is from the same kind of slice of Scotland as I am. We just moved for his work, he's an architect. So we moved from Scotland to England a few, seven, eight years ago for a job, a career move for him, and then down again uh, for the same reason. Just five days after my youngest was born, uh, oh, which was oh. about 17 months ago. <laughs>
0: oh, wow. Welcome. Welcome to the world, schoolboy. <laughs> yeah. your- wow. So do your kids sound English? um well Aidan
2: just sounds like he's 17 months old sure. Maisie has she's got her own little voice don't she Hannah like yeah, she yeah. I don't know sometimes she she's lost a bit of her Scottishism so when we lived up in the northeast she was born in England and um, but when we lived up in the northeast she used to say things like um put it in my pocket <laughs> can you put that <laughs> in my pocket I don't know if it was Scottish or just has quite an unusual little voice that I don't know where she where it's from. It's not English. It's not nothing. She used to say like a northeastism, but no, I don't know. She's kind of ploughing her own furrow, I think.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I'd agree with that, <laughs> and it's wonderful. <laughs> I kind of
2: have this fantasy that I'll get her into voiceover work. We'll all live off the dividends for the next Peppa Pig, and I'll never have to work Nice.
0: Again so what got you I mean what what made you want to do a master's program um so there's
2: different routes to training as a therapist and you can you it's a sort of minimum qualification that you need to be a proper qualified counselor or psychotherapist is like a diploma level course um and I did my kind of introductory levels a few years ago and have always thought I'll go back diploma would have been kind of the quickest route in but um i'm quite interested in i'm quite interested in the theory and in really exploring that in a kind of critical like and in an academically critical way and i'm interested in research so a master's program just seemed like the most sensible route for me a masters so it's over two years uh, two three years depending on how long i take for my thesis so yeah we'll see so um but it was de- it's definitely been the right choice for me I think um I find myself just just always want to know more like every lecture finishes too soon for me I just I want them to keep going and I want to ask them more questions And so I think it it was definitely the right the right choice I think if I had gone ahead in a diploma I'm, I might have just felt hungry for a little bit more a little bit of, of kind of depth or um gosh I don't know is it depth or is it just kind of just that level of academic critique of the material i suppose that you get with a masters that you don't necessarily get in a diploma type program?
1: yeah absolutely. and can I ask what led you to wanting to to be a counselor i guess oh like in the context of listening, counselors yeah. have to do quite a lot of listening. <laughs> and but it like more, it, than, I, just, more than just because it's, not, because it's like not like sitting and listening to your friends it's it listening and then not carrying somebody else's stuff as well and having to be able to sort of disconnect from it when you need to so that's lots of questions all in one really but what took you down that path
2: yeah well it, i mean it does feel resonant with this idea of listening i think so when I think back to kind of the moments of real transformation, or the, the seasons of real transformation in my life, there has always been someone listening to me, properly listening to me in those seasons. And I have a memory as a teenager of sitting in a car with um, it was a, a youth leader in a, a group that I was involved in, and um, just feeling like it was the first time I had ever been listened to. And I'm, you know, that is. one sense nonsense because my parents listened to me lots when i was a child but there was something about the depth of his interest and the uh, attentiveness he listened and questioned he was particularly good at questions um that was really significant for me and i think yeah i just have a real a real belief in the impact of being listened to and being seen and heard and understood by someone else as a tool for change and a tool for healing and restoration and i think lots of people that go on to train as therapists have had really significant experiences of therapy themselves and i had in my early 20s a long period of, of a lot of therapy and it that was one of the most important parts of that was just this space to be listened to this space where i don't have to second guess the voice or the instinct or the, didn't have to filter didn't have to worry about kind of an ungenerous so something about that space being safe and filled with grace like grace-filled listening I think where you do not you don't feel like the need to filter or protect or distort what you are actually thinking or what you actually want to communicate and I think there's a really unique space in therapy for that because as you say Hannah, it's different from a friend where there's this reciprocity and this kind of shared stake in the dynamic between you it's, it's a it's a different type of dynamic it's a different balance of interest in the dynamic when you have a therapist and a client and there's no need to protect your therapist's feelings or to you know you don't need to then say to your therapist and and how are you you know <laughs> yeah so a convoluted way of saying I think, listening to me when it's done well in a therapeutic context is just an extraordinary tool for healing and part of that is because it allows us to see ourselves when the space is safe enough for us to pour out whatever is going on for us in the therapeutic room we can see it and we can allow ourselves to be free from the kind of distortion the hiding the denial the minimizing that we maybe do in our day-to-day lives because we've been able to kind of lay it out just as it is but if we've listened to you well then then we don't get the space to do that
0: that's amazing you say so yeah you said so many wonderful things there about creating and offering that that space I want to go right back though to the moment that you spoke to that you were speaking about there was somebody in your early life who there was a moment when they they gave you space to talk and they asked you insightful questions and that was a, a significant moment for you. that fascinated me because that was a that was a moment of potential transformation for you the kind of transformation that it seems like you're talking about is possible in clarity, but it happened outside of that context and selfishly linking it to the, you know what eggshells talks about which is disagreement you know in a disagreement sense depending on who you're with, you're possibly not looking to the person that you're listening to therapy. But that moment was transformational for you. And I'm wondering, I guess, about the power of uh, questions and helping somebody to reflect in a moment. Um, Could you say anything about that?
2: Yeah, I think there is this kind of, if we think in, you know, if you ask anybody to give you a list of ways to be a good listener we would generally come up with like keep good eye contact and use your non-verbals mm-hmm, oh yeah mm, and don't overspeak and that sort of thing but I think that's a quite a quite a small quite a limited view of what it is to listen well and whether whether it's in a therapeutic context or not there was a a bit of research done by a, a an american consultancy back in 2016 in the harvard business review it was zenger zenger and folkman they're called and i forget the name of the article but they did this study of coaching clients and they looked at the top performers in terms of who was scored highly by their peers and by their coaches as good listeners and they were expecting to find you know these are very quiet people, they maybe do a bit of summarising at the end, but actually what they found was the people that were considered to be the best listeners were ones that asked really effective questions. And there's this sense that listening well is not this passive, staying quiet, just giving the space over. It's this active, collaborative co-creation of a listening space that belongs to the other person's intent, that, that is designed for the other person's views, perspectives, whatever, to be laid out. And I find that really freeing to think about because that's my instinct. When I'm really interested in what somebody's saying, I want to ask a question, like I want to understand more. And it makes sense when you follow that train of thought through, we will feel listened. If someone asks us a relevant question, we are going to feel listened to because they've understood what we've said and they want to know more. And so I think there's there's something there when we're thinking about listening in in the context of conflict or disagreement, when we're talking about listening in that context, that we kind of free ourselves up because it's not about just staying silent while that person lays out their bit and then we wait for our turn to say what we think. We can actually choose to play an active role in getting to the heart of what they actually think we actually think actually I will understand your position better if I join your team and I try and be your partner your co-conspirator like I try to collaborate with you to understand this better and that's not the same as agreeing or legitimizing or saying oh yeah you're totally wrong now I see now I accept your perspective but there's like a, an active role for us there, I think, where we can choose to inhabit an active role. And that's more than just the kind of fundamental stuff of just not interrupting, just waiting for our turn to speak, you know, all the kind of <laughs> remedial stuff.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> all the stuff you read about when you Google, how do I be a good listener? And yeah. then there's like those silly little business <laughs> blogs where that's someone writes, don't my interrupt, my and am dating. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, that, no, that's wonderful. I love co-conspirator in figuring out how people work and how and what a point of view is like. It's, it's a very, the way you've painted it just there feels to me very empowering, rather than um, I think that, especially if you're talking to someone that you, that you really disagree with, there's a notion, isn't there, that if you give them lots of space and you give them the floor to say something, that that somehow means you're accepting their point of view or agreeing agreeing with their point of view one can accept accept their point of view without without agreeing with it I suppose but but that that mutual that collaborativeness um, that is intrinsic intrinsic in the listening that you're talking about sounds really fun yeah
2: and I think it can be combative in a helpful and a healthy way you know, if what we're seeking to do is really explore another's perspective on something that's really contentious or matters a whole lot to us, asking questions can be really challenging. If, if you know, if, if you're allowing yourself to come from a place of genuine curiosity, to really provoke someone that, you know, to think what? So, so why do you think that? Like, what are the assumptions that's built on? Or oh, no, I'm not sure. With that,
0: an example, but um... if you're coming, I got up to. If you're coming from a place of, of real curiosity, so you were talking about how it could be how uh, sort of questioning could be a bit combative and also quite difficult to do if you're uh, speaking with someone who maybe has strong emotional connection.
2: I think I was doing that maybe in a in a positive way almost. I suppose I'm thinking. I'm thinking of myself, and if I was in a debate with someone or a discussion with someone about something that we conflicted about that really mattered to me, I might find it quite tricky to completely lay aside my emotional stake in the discussion and the outcome of the discussion in order to just really occupy a position of curiosity. So that, and that's where there's a distinction. Like when I'm in the therapy room with a client, my perspective on whatever we're talking about is, is so far down the list of priorities that focusing on the client's story and what that means to them is is that's the that's the purpose you know but when I'm talking with a friend about something that we strongly disagree about I don't have that same ability necessarily to just go okay maybe this space is just about getting to the bottom of what you think I carry the sense of no I think maybe I think you're wrong <laughs> and I think that's actually okay and it's quite human and I suppose the point I was maybe trying to Explore was there maybe that we can allow ourselves to think of the questioning and the good listening as one of the tools that we can use to make our own point. If Hannah and I strongly disagree on something, I can ask her loads of really good questions. If I'm right, then my really good questions that are asking her about the foundations of of what she believes might help her to see where the cracks are where the points of differences are so it's not this kind of one-sided thing where we're just exploring one person's perspective it's this collaborative thing where our questions yes they're, they're centered around curiosity at the other person's perspective but they also allow us to find the little spaces little chinks where actually this is what I think about that can fit in so I think it's the different between it feeling like this kind of turn-taking, your turn to speak, then my turn to respond in this very debating style, and it more being this interactive co-creation, co-exploration.
0: I am really wondering if there is if there's anything that you get from about humans from counselling. When you're listening, when you're really deeply listening to someone in a counselling session, and as you say, your point of view is way down the list of priorities. Do you feel that you understand humans a bit better from listening to all sorts of different people's life experiences and does that in any way help you to understand or would it hypothetically do you think help you to understand where someone's coming from maybe if you were disagreeing with a stranger
2: yeah so you're saying does having worked in a therapeutic kind of context are there any broad lessons about what people are like or broad lessons about what it is to listen honestly
0: I guess I was thinking more of it like I feel like the more experiences that I have and the more people that I meet the more I understand how different kinds of people might approach different kinds of have different kinds of points of view in the first place find that with counsel at all? yeah so
2: I'm I'm still early on in my journey I've done I think 50 therapeutic hours but in my pre life. I've done a lot of professional listening to people in different spheres and not professional as well. I suppose I I guess I feel like the more people I meet the less confident I am in my ability to make broad con- draw broad conclusions about categories of people or say what people are like particularly with the clients that I have seen so many times when there's been a sense of journey of meeting and, and having a sense of the sort of person that they are and what they're going to be like and then as you actually get to know what they're actually like you actually get to see some of the unguardedness and the moments of sort of brilliant humanity you know the, the glimpses that we get when we really make contact with a person I just thought oh, gosh no, I was oh, fancy that I was I was I was wrong again. That there's there's more, or it's different, or it's. So I think the, for me, the further I get along this journey in my training, and the you know, older I get, and the more people I meet, and all that sort of stuff, the more I kind of. I'm stripping away this sense that I I know other people or that I understand other people. (laughs) I think I'm just becoming more and more convinced that I need to be able to make space to encounter other people as they are with as few of my own presuppositions or assumptions or filters or judgments as possible. Because those things so much get in the way of our listening and our questioning and our being so I guess I would say that about whether counselling has kind of given me a sense
0: of what people are like that was a wonderful thing to say the other side of the question was about about listening and whether I think it was about all the counselling has made you better a listener and you can address that if if you'd like but I'm also conscious of time and I'd quite like to talk about the uh, parenting side of things as well oh I love parenting (laughs) Is it about parenting that has anything to do with listening, do you think?
2: (laughs) Well, maybe that leads on. I mean, again, I'm such a brand new parent. My oldest is just five, turning six in a couple of months. So I'm brand new to the game. But the main job of parenting to me feels like getting to know who they are and helping them make space in the world to be that person and i just really feel this burden of being able to hear them to you know to see them and to hear them and to be able to understand them and and encounter them as who they actually are because i certainly find it really really tricky sometimes to not just like project all of my own hopes and expectations and unfulfilled nonsense onto them, like you're gonna do everything that I ever did. <laughs> uh, but I mean tricky because they I mean obviously my my littlest doesn't have words really yet. And my biggest has a whole lot of words, but that's only, you know, relatively recently that she's been able to, you know, talk like an adult. And listening is very different than it might be with an adult, you know.
1: I'm interested in the being heard and the being seen because I think that is something that keeps coming up in a lot of conversations that we're having and I'm I think well <laughs> I'm not the counselor here so this is just my in my professional opinion <laughs> and a lot of people who struggle to listen in conflict maybe feel like they haven't been heard or they uh, they should be heard all the time, and does that ultimately all stem from whether they were heard and seen as children? Um, I'm interested in the idea that every one of us has that little child inside that is just like, Please hear me and please see me, and the way that then manifests, especially in conflict or disagreement, because you have lots of different approaches. You have some people who storm disagreement. And who are like, I will be heard, my voice is really loud, blah, 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 and come in from that perspective. And then you have the, you know, another example of someone who shrinks and hides, maybe because they feel like their voices don't deserve to be heard, or they shouldn't be listened to. What do you think about any of that? Does that make any sense to you in your kind of, from A parenting point of view, as well as a a counseling point of view.
2: I'm certain that our experiences of conflict as children will shape our approach to conflicts as adults, not in necessarily a direct, if we saw it done X way, we will ourselves repeat X way but just that kids are watching and learning and creating these internal schemas of the world and how, how the world works, what it means to be safe and secure in the world and what, how they have to operate to create that safety and security. And that we, we carry that with us and we can examine it as adults and choose to move outside of it if we want to and if we grow in our self-awareness. But from a kind of basic perspective, I, I think I would definitely agree that there's there's plenty of writing and you know, plenty of thought gone into that as a kind of core idea. I love that idea about the significance of of being heard and seen as children. And I suppose I'm wondering, as you're describing that, whether there's almost this other layer in it, that I think that the the seeing and hearing our kids or our experience of being seen and heard as children, my sense is that there's something that that does for us, and does for our children, in instilling in us a sense of security that we're okay in giving us like within person-centered counselling theory we talk about conditions of worth which are kind of a little internal rules that we learn around which we structure our sense of how worthwhile we are so we might for example learn that we're kind of safe and secure as long as we're not making anyone angry or we kind of learn these ideas through our child childhood experiences and part in it within a person-centered counseling paradigm you would see the work of therapy as being kind of recognizing what those conditions of worth are and learning to release them or let go of them or dismantle them and so I that's kind of a helpful bit of scaffolding some to understand that idea that I think you're describing that there's so about the messaging we receive as children that the foundation block for the for those senses that we grow up with of what we need to make our world safe and to make ourselves secure and so i wonder whether those different expressions of those different dysfunctional expressions of conflict are perhaps built on that like middle layer of those internal schemas so whether the very aggressive very bullish Unable to listen to anybody else's perspective, conflictor. I wonder what they are protecting. I wonder which of their let's let's go with a person-centered kind of paradigm. there, What issue of their conditions of worth are being threatened by this this thing that they're fighting so hard over? This principle. What is that actually protecting? It's because it's probably not about the issue that that really kind of voracious hot strong desire to defend a position is it really about this thing because often when people struggle to kind of give way in conflict you think hey you can't possibly be this angry about this principle you can't possibly be really this angry about this politician or you know this bit of religion or you know and so that for me would kind of make me think what's this actually about what's this challenging is this challenging something really core about someone's sense of security and similarly in a someone who just feels unable to engage with conflict wants to be kind of mousy doesn't want their voice to be Heard. What would it mean for my voice to be heard? What would it mean to take that risk and let a perspective out there to risk challenging someone, to risk making somebody angry? Why is that a scary thing to do? What does that mean beyond beyond the topic that's been talked about? What does that mean perhaps about me and my security and my yeah my worth, my stability? And so the sort of the whole circle loop of that back to parenting, I kind of. I mean, it's, it's horrible to think about your parenting these times because you, you fall down, you know, it's so <laughs> imperfect and you think, what's going to come out of therapy for my kids in 20 years' time? But <laughs> yeah. the desire that I have is to raise my kids with as few of those conditions of worth as possible. Maisie asked me today, um, are, you happy when I, are you happy when I finish all my food on my plate, mummy? I find that a really hard question to answer because the truth is, yeah I am because I'm worried about your diet but I don't want her to hear that I don't want her to hear that linking that messaging it's probably built on my own dysfunctional relationship with food I don't want her to hear that messaging of yeah you make mommy happy when you do what you're told You, you know you make mommy happy when you eat all the food that you're given that's very conditional there and she you know she's canny she's picking up on that so I find it a very difficult road to walk
0: yeah that's yeah seriously that's a lot of pressure. I mean, how how do you manage that? That's that's a fantastic example. How do you how do you manage that more generally? Parenting and understanding so much about how much effect you're having on your kids. <laughs> well, it's, so my mum is a therapist,
2: and I'm really interested to have a conversation with her one day about what that was like. She trained when I was a teenager, and I I wonder what that was like for her. I think the really the really reassuring stuff. we know about children and about their resilience and about their brain development their um psychosocial development is is that children that are in homes with parents that we use this like good enough (laughs) so there's a lot of room there's a lot of room for error when you're parenting your children as long as you're starting from a position of kind of fairly consistent being fairly predictable and being nurturing and and loving and and, um, physically affectionate so i kind of feel like as long as we're topping up on all of those basics she's gonna they're I mean they're gonna I think more about her because she's older but they're gonna I, I guess I want to instill in them the bounciness and the toughness the resilience to be able to withstand our inadequate parenting more than I want to just get parenting perfect I want to just raise these bouncy children that will be able to grow past our mistakes and forgive us for the stuff that we got wrong but like, I think I'm quite perfectionist by nature so it's Again, that's not something that I find easy. It's more a principle I have to try and drum into myself.
0: That's a lot of pressure, but I think that's a wonderful place to to be aiming for. That sounds that sounds great. That's
1: also such a lovely way to look at parenting because I feel like so many people think about like just desperately trying to parent differently from how their parents were. I know that you know lots of people in my family, <laughs> especially on on my mum's side, where my mum has uh, there's three of them. So there's my mum and then my auntie and my uncle. And they came from a, quite a very broken family. And all three of them have worked incredibly hard to do the complete opposite of what their parents did. And part of it has worked, or, or aspects of it have worked, because they, you know, there's my brother and I and then my cousins. We all seem to be relatively well-functioning human beings (laughs) Um, but some of it hasn't worked because they have just projected all of their stuff onto us and that's a lot to deal with as the children if that makes sense yeah like you're
2: carrying the weight of two generations of mess
1: yeah exactly so I think that's really beautiful the way you look at it it's like less like I'm going to be the perfect parent, but more just like giving them the tools, I suppose, to go forward, go forth <laughs> and be brilliant humans themselves. I love that.
2: But do you feel that pressure that you describe? I think what am I thinking about that? I think I guess our perspective on, on parenting is victims of how we might feel about parenting if we were of a different faith, we didn't have a faith. I think part, some of I sometimes experience a sense of pressure because there's this idea within the Christian faith of God as being a father, a parent, and us as being children, and that kind of being a model for what it is to parent our own children, which is obviously, you know, God's your role model. <laughs> it's, it's always it's quite a quite high bar. But there's also this, within the Christian faith, there's a strong thread of grace and this idea of our imperfection and our flawedness and our frailty and our inadequacy being kind of absorbed and caught up and made up for and done away with through relationship with Jesus and so that's just a convoluted way of saying that's there's like definitely there's something in me that wants to get it exactly right but there's also this this belief in this conviction that I have that I absolutely cannot and that is okay because some someone else has sort of got it <laughs> yeah. so I think that's that's for me that's probably the kind of the the resting place of that but I don't necessarily live in that place all the time I have to kind of remind myself to go back to that place.
0: Yeah, totally yeah how could how could you it, it, that's that's why that's why we carry on developing faith throughout our lives if we have it you know it's it's not about It's not just like oh good everything's fine you know you're constantly trying to um, constantly reassessing and uh, leaning on it in different in different ways but that is Mm -hmm. that's wonderful and I love that you said grace again because that reminds me that you said that when you were first talking about counselling
2: yeah Yeah. I think you're right I think I talked about there being this gracious space and that that is that you're you're totally right there's something there isn't there of listening with ears that aren't looking to kind of criticise and condemn but some being a spacious enough place that you can kind of come you can bring your stuff here
0: and it's going to get a, a gracious yeah absolutely, it's going to get a gracious reception that's wonderful Great. Hannah is there anything else you wanted to ask or talk about specifically? no
1: I don't think so I think everything you have said has been oh I feel really grateful it's been so amazing and beautiful and so like everything that I sort of believe in as well, which is great.
0: Convenient.
1: I love to talk to people who agree with me. So no conflict here. Yeah, but no, we're conflict free. So aside from the trying technical issues. I can't um, wait for
2: you guys to edit it into something to hear.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Ashley, is there anything else that you had wanted to say? Did you say, oh, did you want to bring anything else to the table that we haven't given you a chance No, it's been so fun. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Ashley. Oh, no, thank you for having me. Have a good night, both of you.